and the uh, what went on with the two witnesses and who they were. And we remember we if you were here, we had the discussion in groups about uh, who was what, and I gave you my understanding, and then we talked about it was a controversial. Uh, passage. Tonight's not near as controversial, nor near as long. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk about three things. Obviously, if you've got the handouts, you might need the handout. We've got three things we're going to talk about uh, that come straight out of this, this text. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on the first two, and then we're going to spend a little more time on the third one. Okay. And so what happens here is chapter uh, 11, verse 14, bridges the gap between what has happened and what's about to happen. If you remember where we are in the grand scheme of things, we are almost exactly in the middle of the book. In fact, one commentator says that he believes that Revelation is written in chiastic structure. Okay, y'all got that, right? So... (laughs) Chiastic structure, and uh, let me see, we we, chiastic structure. What it means is where the story begins, it ends, and where it ends, it begins. Okay, so it's it's that it goes around and comes back. So, for instance, um, great literature has been built on chiastic structure, um, where. You'll have a chapter 1 relates to chapter 9, chapter 2 to chapter 8, chapter 3, 7, chapter 4, 6, and then the middle of the action is always in chapter 5, the turning point. Okay? And then as it works itself out, it comes back to the beginning. Okay? Um, for instance, uh, um, controversial set of novels that came out for young adults a couple of few years ago. Harry Potter, seven, uh, seven books in it. Okay, uh, I assume either you have read them or you will not read them. If you haven't read them by now, or you have seen the movies or you will not. But what happens in that in the seventh book, you can take these two off and four will be in the middle. In the seventh book, the last scene of the seventh book relates to the first scene of the first book. And it turns in book four. It's in chiastic structure. So the book of Revelation, chapter 11, these verses are the crux of the whole book. It's the turning point, if you will, of the whole book. And what happens here is it says in verse 14, The second woe has passed, and the third woe is coming soon. So what we assume is that the seventh trumpet is going to sound soon. And it does. In fact, verse 14 literally means the second woe has passed. Remember the second woe and all the death that happened before we had the John eating the scroll and before we had the two witnesses, we had the sixth trumpet. And there was the second woe is the sixth trumpet and devastation happened. So you would figure that the second woe was passed, the third woe was going to come. So we figure when the trumpet sounds, the seventh one, terror is going to strike. But that's not what happens. Let me ask you a question real quickly. Just in life in general, what are trumpets used for? Wake you up in the morning. So in the uh, military, they play reveille. Is that what they play to wake you up in the morning? So you got that? Yeah, get your attention that something's going to happen. Here's the thing about trumpets. They are not 
quiet instruments. Being your pastor for over four and a half years, we've heard complaints. One of the reasons we're doing the renovation we're doing, we heard complaints in the sanctuary about things that people couldn't hear. I never heard when Bill Lars played that trumpet, I couldn't hear it. You know, his mouth was moving, but I didn't hear any sound. Why? Because you hear a trumpet when it sounds, right? I mean, it's just an instrument that when you play it, it's loud. In the Old Testament, trumpets were used to announce the coronation of a king. So somebody was coming, you coronated a king, you blew a trumpet. Anywhere else in the Old Testament, you remember trumpets being blown? Maybe with the number seven involved? Jericho. I like That's the Easter version. They hopped around Jericho. <laughs> I like that, Lucy. You want to give us a... Yeah, yeah, we, let's, y'all want to give us a demonstration? That's great. That's, you know, but they did. They, they, they march around Jericho. Right? They get there. What happens? They all... Yeah, and play the trumpet. and they go, We just talked about you, Bill, and you weren't in here. We're talking about trumpets, and you weren't in here. Um, and so they blow, and everything comes tumbling down, right? So when the seventh trumpet is blown, it's an announcement, but it's also an announcement of a coronation. Look what happens. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and He shall reign forever." And ever. Alright? And the 24 elders, which by the way, that's what, when Susan and I were married, we went out to the Hallelujah Chorus with a trumpet plan. Alright? People had to stand up for us because you had to stand up for the Hallelujah Chorus. My favorite picture from our wedding is me walking out and I've got the biggest smile on my face. Like, that is done. Alright? <laughs> <laughs> trumpet, your Hallelujah Chorus is playing. I love it. Alright. Twenty-four elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and within His temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Alright? We're going to talk tonight about three things that God will do. Here's the thing I want to tell you. Verse 15 announces the seventh trumpet. Verses 15 through 19 are then a summary of everything else that's about to happen. Okay, if you remember, remember our um, the seven uh, bowl. I mean, the seven seals, and the seventh seal turned into the seven trumpets. And this seventh trumpet is going to turn into the seven bowls. But it's really the uh, Revelation 15, uh, 12 through 22. Okay, it's the, it's the rest of the book. And so we just have to keep that in mind. And what we see here are three things that God will do when the final trumpet blows. When the final... uh, This is it. This is finale. Uh, This is the finality of all time. This is no time left. God has said it's done. It's finished. Okay? 
When that happens, the first thing is we see, and we'll see for the rest of the book of Revelation, God will reign supremely. Okay? He will reign supremely. Here's the thing that we know about God right now God is in control. He is sovereign over all, but He allows certain things to continue. Right? He allows choices on our behalf. He allows people to choose not to follow Him. And so as a result, He is reigning. He's in control. At any moment, He could stop whatever's going on, but He allows certain things. When the final trumpet blows, He says, no more. Okay? It's uh, like children that have been given a little freedom and they take advantage of that freedom and they get loud and ruckus and then the teacher or the parent says, no more. We're done. God, when the seventh trumpet blows, says, we're done. No more. I'm not allowing any of that to go on again. It, it is time for me to take supreme control. Now I want to show you a couple of things in the Scripture that I think are really neat. And you may not think they're really neat, but you just nod at me like you do. Okay? That I think are, really are neat about the way that they say this. First of all, the tense of the verb changes when we get to this passage of Scripture. Alright? In the English language, what are, what are the tenses of verbs? Past, present, and future. Okay? That makes perfect sense. That's not the way they are in the Greek. Okay? In the Greek, there are three. There's the present, the aorist, and the perfect. Okay? The present means ongoing, continual action right now. Okay? So, I am talking to you. And I'm going to continue talking to you for a little bit. It's continual action. Perfect is when something happened in the past that has ongoing effects into the future. The classic example from Scripture is when Jesus on the cross, right before He dies, He says, It is finished. And the idea is He has completed His work, but the effects of what He's doing will carry on into the indefinite future. The aorist is the simple past tense. I went to the grocery store. I bought some fruit. I ate the fruit. It is completed action in the past. The verb tense in this part of Revelation changes to the aorist tense. In fact, in this particular few verses, the aorist tense is used 11 times. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. He has reigned or has finished the reign forever and ever. Now here's the thing. Only God can talk about the future as if it's a past event. You and I can't do that. Because our days in the future are uncertain. Right? You, you could think right now what you have planned for tomorrow. But how many times have your plans for tomorrow not come to fruition? Right? How many times have what you plan to do doesn't quite happen? Uh, I have been planning for the last week to mow my yard. <laughs> I am reminded every morning 
that the yard needs to be mowed. And yet my schedule has not yet allowed me to mow the yard. I wake up, I go to bed every night saying, tomorrow's a day I will mow the yard. And guess what? It's still unmowed. God is the only one that can talk about the future as if it's a past event. As if it's already happened. And so what the angels are saying and what we're getting a glimpse of here is that God has already taken complete control and has finished what He has promised to do. Yeah, Joe. In the, in the example you gave there are three different tenses. Yeah. If you were to say I'm fixing to cut the grass it would be present and perfect. But well. Because it's something that's going to affect <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It'd be present and perfect for my wife at this moment if I was fixing to cut the grass. Uh, it's going to rain tomorrow. I was going to mow it tomorrow, but it's raining all day tomorrow. You know, and really, really, about a week ago, it didn't really need it. Now it does. And I'm kind of protesting the fact that it's the first week of March and i got to mow my grass. This shouldn't have to happen, you know? It's not grass. I it's, think you thought if you put it off long enough, you wouldn't have to do it. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm cutting the weeds. All right. Here's another thing that happens in here, and I love this. Okay, look at verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was. What do you expect next? And is to come. And is to come. Is that what it says? No, it says and has come. Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. That's not where John just forgot, oh, I forgot the is to come. What John is saying is, we've talked about for so long the one who was and is and is to come. Well, the is to come means the one that's coming again. He's come again. It is to a group of people that were in the midst of severe persecution, what John is saying is, there is absolutely no doubt that it's going to happen. You can talk about a future event as if it's already happened. There, you can be as confident about what Christ is going to do as you have been about what you've already done. It's an amazing little switch in tenses and the way John writes it. It's a brilliant way to communicate the certainty of the future. Alright? And so the first thing we see here is God will reign supremely. He's going to do what He said He's going to do. And when He does, He's not going to be putting up with any more junk. He's going to take control. And the rest of the book is going to be about Him shackling Satan, defeating the demons, and restoring the original order of creation. He's going to be in supreme control. Second thing, God's not only going to reign supremely, He's going to judge righteously. What it says. So there, the 24 elders are falling and they first give thanks to the one who is and who was and the one who has already begun to reign. And verse 18 says, The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. So the time has come. In verse 18, the nations are angry, the wrath has come, the time has come for judging the dead. 
So when the seventh trumpet blows, whatever it is in that moment in time, when the angels announce it's time, God says it's time, He takes complete control and He judges those who have refused to follow Him. Usually when we say someone judges rightly or correctly or righteously, it means that they were fair and good in what they did. Well, here's the truth. God will be. It just won't seem like it to those who are on the other side. He is righteously judging those who have disobeyed and gone the other way. And so God puts into motion... Now, we'll see more about this. Again, this is a summary statement. We'll see more about this. But the idea is that God is going to say, No more. I am done and I'm going to judge you. Usually when... um, In my family... When I have to utter the words, no more, or that's it, or now you've done it, okay? Usually that is followed by some sort of punishment, correct? I mean, uh, it doesn't always have to be terrible punishment. It depends on how long they've been going and how defiant they have been. The level of their punishment is often equal to those kind of parameters. Alright? God in the same way says it's done and I'm going to judge you according to the correct standard and your level of disobedience. And guess what? If you don't have Christ, it's not going to be pretty. There's nobody that's just going to get by or get a little bit of punishment. It's going to be all bad. And so God is going to righteously judge those who are not a part of His plan or a part of his family. Um, the reason I thought about the word plan is I was thinking about those people, the first people to read this book, who could see their, their, their friends and neighbors arrested and taken away, and they could hear from John's own words, in the end, those people who refuse God will receive what they deserve. Um, I, I was, uh, Sunday night, our Sunday school class had room at the end, and um, I was privileged to give the devotion to those guys. And I, I spoke out of Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms. It's the psalm where the writer sits and talks about how I keep watching all these people succeed who just treat your name like garbage. They don't do what you ask them to do. They're wicked and they keep making money and they don't ever seem to fail. And yet here I am. And it says in there, my feet almost slipped. I began to wonder, am I doing all this in vain? And he goes into the presence of the Lord and it is there that he realizes that in the end, those who run away from the Lord will get what they deserve. The good news is those of us who are in the Lord won't get what we deserve. We'll receive grace. And so God is going to reign supremely He's going to judge righteously. And then here's the last thing. He's going to reward graciously. Look at the second part of verse 18. So the nations are angry. The wrath has come. The time for judging of the dead. By the way, the dead there doesn't necessarily just mean physically dead. It means time for judging those who are spiritually dead as well. But it's also the time has come not only for judging the dead, but for doing what? 
rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name. So that's anybody that's a part of your family. Both small and great. And, which we'll see more about this in future weeks, for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and with His temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Alright? I want to focus for a minute on what kind of rewards we're going to get from the Lord. And I want you to do this with me. You can keep a mark there, or a bookmark, on Revelation chapter 11, but I want you to turn with me to Matthew 25. Because I want us to think for just a moment about this concept of... What do we mean when we say He's going to reward His followers? My hope is that everyone in this room is a part of that group. So I hope this will be particularly applicable to us. And we're going to look at a place where Jesus uses symbolism. Right? Revelation is not the only place in Scripture where symbolism is used. Jesus used symbolism. We don't call it symbolism. We call it parables. Right? He tells a story and the story has a spiritual truth that we're supposed to understand. And so when we get to chapter 25, starting in verse 14, he's going to tell us a very commonly known parable. The parable of the talents, right? That we can probably go through it without even looking here at the Scripture. What happens in the parable of the talents? He gives one guy... Ten. Ten or five, depending on which... When you look this one in Matthew's five, he gives him five talents, right? He gives five talents. He gives the second guy in this one two. He gives the last guy one. All right. The guy with five, what does he do? He doubles it. We don't know how. He went out and invested. He uh, wisely invested. He started a business. I don't know what happened. But he, uh, he got, came back. He had ten. All right. The guy with two, what did he do? He doubled it. Right. So he goes out. He's get, he gets two more. Well, however he did it, he gets two more. The third one, okay? Guy comes back, servant, I mean, the master comes back, what's he done? He didn't do anything. He buried it and didn't use it, didn't try it. The idea you get from the passage is it would have been better for him to try something and lose it than to just hold on to it and do nothing with it, okay? Now, usually when we preach this sermon or when I preach this sermon, I focus pretty heavily on are you using the talents God has given you? Whether that be money, Time, relationships, spiritual gifts, are you using it? Are you recklessly using it? Are you trying to use it? But And we usually focus on that third servant, right? Because we say that's not who you want to be. But what we miss is that in this parable, God is giving us a glimpse into what it will be like for the faithful servants of God. When we are rewarded, whether it is... We die and we are with Jesus and then at the, at the end times we resurrected with them and we have the judgment there or we're still alive and Christ comes again and we're a part of that procession. But it gives us some ideas about what that reward is going to be like. Um, remember, what, what's the story here? What's the parable? The master, what does he do at the beginning? He gives them this money, then what does he do? He goes on a journey for an indeterminate amount of time and he shows up when they least expect it, right? Well, now, to the apostles, they would have thought, well, Jesus may be taking a three-day journey somewhere. We know he's taking a 2,000-year journey. And he's waiting and he's going to come back. And so, for us, the Master coming back is the story of Jesus returning. Now, look what happens here. I want you to see in this, and you can write this down. There's not a space to kind of write it down, but just three things at least that will be part of this final thing. One is 
By the way, here's what it says in Matthew 25 when the guy, the rewards are given. He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Okay? Three things out of that. First of all, God will reward us with commendation. You will hear personal praise from Lord God Almighty when you step into His presence. Personal commendation. Personal praise. Look what it says here. He says, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Now just think about it. In our church, I spend a lot of time, Jeff spends a lot of time, as a staff, we talk about, we pray about, we think about, how can we create best an atmosphere in order for us to give praise and honor and glory unto God? We try to set up an atmosphere where we, as a group of people, can give praise to the Lord. Now think about this. When you enter into heaven, the one whom you have spent your life trying to figure out how to praise is going to praise you. He's going to give you a word of commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is the God who shouts and the mountains quake, who speaks and worlds come into existence. What would it be like when He stands and praises you? Seems like six very simple words, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. But think about what it will mean when it is directed towards you and your job is done on this earth. Personal praise from the Father. In Matthew 25, it's a stock phrase that God gave to both servants. But I think if you look in Scripture, we'll realize that it won't just be stock phrases. There will be personal aspects of His commendation to us. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. The idea is that we will receive personalized, individualized commendations from the Lord. It's like a well-crafted note of encouragement as opposed to a Hallmark card someone took out of the aisle at Kroger. Now, I like Hallmark cards but they're not personalized. If they're personalized, they're personalized by somebody, but the card itself is not personalized, right? You know what it's like to get a personal note from somebody. I remember I hadn't been pastor here very long, and I went to my mailbox one day, and in the mailbox was a letter that I could tell right away had been written on an old-fashioned manual typewriter. It was addressed to me with no real return address. And as a pastor in seminary, they told me not to open anonymous letters. I found in my first church that was wise advice. But here I thought someone took the time to do a manual typewritten letter. So I opened it. The letter itself was manually typewritten. Anybody know who it's from? It's Miss Ann Garrett, right? Ms. Ann Garrett, she still uses a manual typewriter, not electric, not a computer. It is a manual typewriter. And you, you can just tell, right? Yeah, the, the lines aren't always exactly right. The, you can tell when she's used some correction ribbon in there. Um, we, I talked with her a few weeks ago. We visited her house, and she talked about how hard it is to get that ribbon anymore. She has to get it special because they don't make it anymore. But I took the, and the letter itself didn't say amazing things. I mean, it didn't have, it wasn't very long. It was just a short note that said, Thank you for being our pastor. I'm glad that you're here. But you know how much it meant? Because it was 
manually typed out in a moment that she wanted to let it be known. Paul gives the sense that God's commendation to us will be much more like a manually typed out letter than a Hallmark card that fits everybody. In fact, if you look at Revelation 2.17, there's another little thing. You don't have to go there. You can stay at Matthew 25, but you can write it down. We've already looked at this passage when he's talking to the churches. And he says this, I'm going to give you, the people that overcome, I'm going to give you some hidden manna to sustain you now. But then I'm going to give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, now what, was, what was manna for? In the Old Testament, when they got the manna, what was that for? It was just food. It was just daily sustenance. It was, today I need food, God has provided so God is, is in Revelation is talking to a church that's under severe persecution. He tells them, first of all, I'm going to give you manna. Now, not literally manna. He means I'm going to sustain you on a daily basis. Then he says, but I'm also going to give you a white stone with a name written on it that is only known to me. All right? Most likely that stone refers to a common object called a tessera stone. It was a rigid little square or rectangular tablet made of wood or tile. Or if it was from an especially wealthy person or a special event, it would have been made of ivory or marble, which would have made it white. Various uses for it in Roman times. Sometimes they were tickets. Sometimes they were vouchers. Sometimes they were personal identification. Um, What God is saying is... I'm going to give you a ticket into my eternal feast. In fact, one of the most common uses for a tessera stone back then was if a king was going to have a great banquet, he would send out the stone as an invitation with a personalized message on the stone for the person who would receive it. That person would bring the stone back to the party and it would be used as an entrance into the grand feast. God says... I'm going to give you, and this is in Revelation 2, some hidden manna now, and I'll give you a ticket to the eternal banquet. It says that it's going to have a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. The idea is that the name will probably have something to do with who you are. In fact, you remember in the Old Testament when he said, you are no longer Jacob, but you are now Israel. You are no longer Abram, which means a father, You are Abraham, which means you are father of many. He changed the name to fit the person. I am perfectly okay with and hope that when I get to heaven, he says, you are no longer Lyle. I love my name, but it doesn't describe who I am. You might know what the word Lyle means? From the island. I'm from Dyersburg, all right? And that's not an island. Well, that river down there changes course every once in a while. Every once in a while. But it's not an island. My, my parents named me that because they liked the way it sounded, all right? But I'll step into heaven and I believe God will say, You're no longer Lyle. You are now. And He will give me a name that will be known to me and Him. And it will describe something special and unique about the relationship that we have. That is personal commendation. Well done, good and faithful servants seems so simple. But when you consider that absolutely none of us in this room deserve to have that said to us, it's an amazing thing. God's not lying. He's incapable of lying. He's not 
flattering you. He's not patronizing you. He means it. And He's going to give you a name that no one else knows. So the first thing that the reward can mean, and when He says we're going to reward His servants in Revelation, is that we're going to give Him commendation. Here's the second thing, and y'all are going to be real excited about this. You're not only going to get commendation, He's going to give you responsibility. No amens there. <laughs> Woohoo! Responsibility. Give me some work. Come on. What does it say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. What? You have been faithful with a few things, so go take a rest. You know what it says? I'm going to give you a lot to be responsible for. You've been faithful with a little. I'm going to give you a lot. For anybody that thinks that heaven is going to be retiring to the great big hammock in the sky, overlooking the beach, you are woefully mistaken. Scripture says that we're going to work. Now, it won't be like work here. It's not going to be drudgery. It will be glorious and exciting and exhilarating, but we're going to work. Um, God's going to reward us based on what we've been doing. There is a sense. I don't believe that I'll be a preacher in heaven because I believe God probably got that covered pretty well. Jesus is going to kind of be there. I don't have to point people to Him. Uh, but I believe that in some way I will serve the Lord in a similar fashion to what I'm doing now. I don't, want, don't know what that means. Um, and it may mean, who knows what the new earth is going to be like. And so uh, it may be completely different than what I can imagine. But it's going to be in line with what I'm already doing and who I already am. It's going to be that people talk about finding, um, you, you know, the, the, the kind of the catchphrase out there is... Um, Find a work that you love and you'll never work a day in your life, right? Well, the thing is, in heaven, you're not going to have to go through a search to find it. God's going to give you responsibility that will be right in there. One of the things that we'll be doing is we'll be helping the Lord to rule and to reign over creation for all eternity. Uh, some of you out here like to grow gardens and flowers. <laughs> no weeds, right? No weed eating. No... I'll be able to I'll be able to do my hand like this and the grass will be bowed, right? <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, that's more magic than <laughs> we're thinking about. But you'll you'll have something something along the line of what you're doing. All right. The Paul Paul said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. There's in store for me the crown of righteousness, but the Lord will award me on that day. And the sense is that the Paul is getting reward in line with who he is and what he did. Listen very carefully. There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We are not saved by works in the least. But Scripture seems to be pretty clear that rewards in heaven may be based on how we act and live and what we do. Now, uh, I, I talked about this in the first, at 4 o'clock, and Miss... Um, Miss um, Athoda came up to me and said her pastor, she, she got concerned about that one time and went to a pastor this was many, many years ago when she was uh, a young lady and said um, pastor, that kind of concerns me he said, listen, you're not going to be envious of your neighbor's joy and you're not going to be upset your joy will be unbelievable but our work and our fellowship with the Lord here will determine how much we're able to enjoy the fellowship and the work in the new earth. I firmly believe that Scripture teaches that. Alright? So, 
we're going to get commendation. We're going to get responsibility. And here's the last thing. And you can go ahead and turn back to Revelation 11 because I'm going to show you it there too. But it's right here in the Matthew 25. We're going to be rewarded with this fellowship. Remember, it's well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll make you ruler over a lot. Come and share your master's happiness. In the KJV, in the King James Version, it says, Enter into the joy of your Lord. Come and share. Enter into. Here's an interesting thing about those particular words. They were commonly used in the day for entering into a party. In those days, at a grand banquet or a feast, someone would stand at the door, and as you came and showed them your invitation, they would say, Come and join. Share in the happiness of the Master. And the idea is they are introducing you into, to use a paraphrase, the partay. Alright? The banquet. The joy. The fun. Alright? And so they're saying, come on in. Enjoy it. David said the one thing that he asked of and the one thing that he sought was that he might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. The great heavenly banquet will be corporate and communal. We're all going to be there together. But scholars agree at the same time there will be something highly personalized and individualized about it. Your enjoyment of the heavenly banquet is going to depend on your happiness and capacity, excuse me, for happiness and joy in God. Your enjoyment is going to be based on your capacity to enjoy. Let's say we took a vacation together. We all flew down to Miami. I don't know if you saw Peyton Manning's flown to Miami. They're watching every movie he makes now. He's been released by the Colts and he's flown to Miami. He's got to be meeting with the Dolphins or going to the house he owns there, one or the other. So we're all going to fly to Miami. We're going to get on a cruise to Jamaica. Okay? So everybody in this room, we're going to be in a cruise to Jamaica. Same environment, same food. All of us will be doing the same thing. We'll have varying expectations to enjoy the event. Some of you would be immediately concerned about the extra pounds you're putting on at the buffet table. Others of you would not be able to enjoy that at all because you didn't plan and stress over it for six months. If I said, let's leave right now, we're all going, you would say, it's not planned, I don't have it, what's going on? Maybe you've abused your skin and in the past you've had cancer on your skin and you're not allowed out into the sun and so you're never allowed outside of your room. We're all going to have different experiences on the cruise. Some of you might eat something that doesn't agree with you and you lose an afternoon. Some of you are going to find out that you've never been on a cruise before and nothing agrees with you on the open sea. We had a conversation today with Jeff who went on a cruise for his honeymoon during hurricane season. It was not the most enjoyable moment. The idea is, depending on our capacity to enjoy it, we will experience that cruise all differently. I experience this all the time when I take groups to Brazil. Some people are really picky eaters. They don't enjoy it near as much. Some people like to make other people think that what we're eating was what, Miss Carolyn? Chicken. <laughs> Dog by day, chicken by night. Miss Carolyn Hampton. <laughs> like to make sure we all knew that sitting at the table. 
and cause some people in our group to not eat as much. Some people get a cold or get sick while we're down there. Some people can't adjust to the different climate or to the rooms or to the comforts they have or to the people. And as a result, we all enjoy it and experience it differently. The way that you interact with the Lord here and now will impact how you interact with the Lord for eternity. And so the truth is, we will be rewarded. The question is, are you engaging the Lord now? Look at the end of Revelation chapter 11. Because I want you to see this presence of God there. After all that's happened, the declarations happened, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Where's the temple? In heaven. And within His temple was seen the Ark of His Covenant. What was the Ark of the Covenant a symbol of? His presence, right? God's presence was thought to sit on the mercy seat, thought was to sit right there in that place, right? In fact, the Jewish people for generations believed that they only need to recover the Ark of the Covenant to bring the presence of God back to them. It's a belief that has lasted for generations. They even made a pretty good movie about it about 30 years ago. Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? They thought if they could... remember You remember the premise of that movie? The Nazis and the Allies were going after the Ark because they thought the Ark promised the presence of God with them. What we see here in Revelation is, I don't know if it's the actual Ark or it's just a symbol of the presence of God here. But the point is that when God says it's done, His presence will be available for His people. And that we will dwell in that forever. Amen? Amen. We see in this little passage, God's going to rule supremely. He's going to judge righteously. And He's going to reward graciously.